The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Zephaniah 3:16. In verse 8 of chapter 3, we hear the second stage in the savior summons to satisfaction. The goal is to find our hearts satisfied in him, and that is the motivation for according to Zephaniah for those who have ears to hear to seek him together and to wait on him. He gave two reasons why they should wait. The first reason in verse 8 was because he still intended to put an end to evil. Keep persevering, keep trusting because I still intend to put an end to evil. And then in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3, I also keep waiting because for it's my intention to make a new creation. a new creation made up of a community that has transformed speech they're calling on the name of the lord they're serving him with one accord and this people that are going to be gathered to the very presence of god are going to come from every tongue and tribe and nation as far as the rivers of ancient cush the white and blue nile and growing out of Ethiopia and present-day Sudan the farthest reaches of the globe in Zephaniah's day they'll be gathering gathering to Jerusalem and then there's an unpacking on that day Jerusalem you shall not be put to shame because I'll transform you from within I'll clean out all of the rebel from your midst and all that will be left in the city of Jerusalem is a pure vibe people a people that he calls the remnant of Israel in verse 13 but this remnant of Israel now includes those from the nations people like the Ethiopian eunuch people who have come in from the ends of the earth i would argue like you and like me the on that day in verse 11 is now parallel with on that day in verse 16 on that day something great will happen so in 11 through 13 there's this on that day promise that on that day the lord will not put jerusalem to shame and then today and next week on that day the lord will bring full blown salvation on that day a promise of a future call to not fear or lose hope look with me at verse 16 on that day it shall be said to jerusalem fear not o zion let not your hands grow weak The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
I have gathered those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. That's as far as we're going to go today. I believe that that is a, a speech on its own. The ESV takes the quotation marks all the way down to the end of verse 20. But I think that what is said to Jerusalem actually ends at verse 18. And I want us to think about it and how it relates to us. So there's going to be a future call. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, don't fear. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, don't let your hands grow weak. This call to not lose fear or lose hope. First of all, the timing. It's on that day. Well, let's just refresh where we've come the last several weeks. What is on that day? That is the day of the Lord. When did that happen? Or when will it happen? It's on the day that God punishes sin, according to verse 8. My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation. It's the day when God's wrath comes upon the sins of the people of the world. From every tongue and tribe and nation. In this word, every people group and every political power. The nations and the kingdoms are going to be gathered into one spot and judgment's going to be brought on them. Now it's easy for us as New Covenant Christians to be reading these Old Testament prophets and saying, how does that relate? Is this still all future? And I've tried to show you that there has already come a day when the sins of people from every tongue and tribe and nation have been focused in. The wrath of God has already been poured out that the day of the Lord has come at the death of Christ. We're still anticipating another great day. And in that day, the fires of God will be poured out on all who have not identified with Christ. But the future comes into the present. 2,000 years ago, the wrath that awaits all who are hostile to God, not surrendered to God, who are like the serpent, the wrath of God against the devil and all following him, intruded into history at the cross. And because of that, we read in 2 Corinthians 5 that already a new creation has come. It's already started. At the resurrection of Jesus, it's the first fruits of the new creation. His resurrection body on the third day, that Sunday morning, was a testimony that the future has started already in the present. It's the beginning of the end. On that day of God's wrath has already come. It's not only on the day when he punishes sin, it's the day that he creates a new people from every tongue and tribe. So look with me at verses 9 and 10. For at that time, then, at that day when God rises up as a covenant witness to separate the sheep from the goats, at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. The peoples that I set apart, the peoples that come through the fire, ultimately because of their identification with my son, I will change them from the inside out. From the mouth, the heart speaks. 
The mouth is the overflow of what's inside. He's, he's changing them. He's giving them a pure lip or a pure tongue. And the result is that people are calling on God. In chapter 1, verse 6, we heard they do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. In chapter 3, verse 2, we learn they do not listen to any voice. They do not trust in the Lord. They do not draw near to God. But now everything's going to change. Now the entire people that have been saved from the fires of God's wrath, this people are purified. The fire doesn't incinerate them. It instills within them new levels of, levels of holiness. All of a sudden, they're taking God seriously. They're reflecting His holiness. He's worthy. He's worthy. They're calling upon His name. And it's happening as far as ancient Ethiopia. And when we were at this point, I argued that the way that Luke shapes the book of Acts and the way that all the gospel writers talked about the crucifixion suggests that they were envisioning the cross event to be the introduction of the prophetic day of the Lord. And that Pentecost, when the tongues went rampant, when people began to call upon the name of the Lord, when they experienced deep-seated unity, and the word of God went out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, these kingdom promises were being fulfilled. Last time we met, we noted this, that the on that day is indeed the day of Yahweh as king of Israel, when he overcomes evil, look what it says, verse 15. Sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exult. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And I noted how John, in John chapter 12, appears to be reaching back both to Zechariah chapter 9, two prophets after Zephaniah, and to Zephaniah chapter 3, and when people say, Hosanna to the King of Israel! Hosanna to the Son of David! Lord, save us! And Jesus comes in, and they take this title that's given to Yahweh in Zephaniah 3, King of Israel, and they apply it to Jesus as he's entering in on that Sunday for the triumphal entry. He's going to die on Friday. Lord, save us! And not only that, whereas in Zechariah it says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. In Zechariah 9 it only mentions the king. Zephaniah 3 says king of Israel. Both texts say daughter of Zion. But the Zechariah 9 text says, Rejoice! O daughter of Zion. And John chapter 12, when he cites the texts from the Old Testament, he says, fear not, O daughter of Zion. He doesn't say rejoice. Whereas Zephaniah 3 says, you shall never again fear evil. 
So what I propose is that, indeed, John has in the back of his mind, as he's writing the story of Jesus' triumphal entry unto the cross event, when he will be lifted up in order to bear the sins of the world, not just of the Jews, but of the world. And we know in John chapter 12 how the crowd is intentionally made up of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. The Pharisees identify the crowd as people from the world, not just from the Jews. And then there's the allusion in the text back to John chapter 3, where it says, Just as the serpent was lifted up, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. For God so loved the world. So I proposed, last time we met, that verses 14 and 15 identify Jesus as the king of Israel, who's ministering to the daughter of Zion, and the daughter of Zion is now made up of everyone in verses 9 and 10 who's gathered to Jerusalem. That is gathered in the presence of God, to identify with God in his holy city. So the timing, to, in my mind, so just recalling this diagram, the future, new age, new covenant, new creation, intrudes into the present at the first appearing of Christ. But there's still an overlap of the ages. The old age is still continuing. But as I consider on that day, what day is he talking about? That someone will, that a voice will ring out, don't fear, and don't let your hands grow weak. The day that that will come out is... Today, I think we're living in the very context that Zephaniah was hoping for, that Zephaniah was envisioning. A day when a voice would ring out to the people of God and say, okay, it's not all over yet, but it's coming. The day of the Lord has begun. So when I think about this day, I'm thinking about it, it's not a 24-hour period, but if you think about a clock that doesn't have... 12 units, but 24. It will be said on that day, I think it's the beginning of the day, not the end of the day. Meaning that God is here as deliverer, and yet it's not all cleaned up yet. He's anticipating an already but not yet reality when we get to this point in these verses. Let's Consider further, who's he talking to? The audience. The audience is the inhabitants of a transformed Jerusalem or Zion. So look with me there at verse 16. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Now this is the same group, apparently, that he calls in verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So my question is, is that us? Does, do the New Testament authors <laughs> look back and actually identify us with the Jerusalem of the Old Testament? Many have just looked at these prophecies and thought about, okay, I'm thinking about physical Israel today on that side of the Atlantic, on that side of the Mediterranean Sea. I'm anticipating something to happen in that physical city of Jerusalem. 
And I'm proposing something else. That when Zephaniah is talking, he's not talking about a picture, he's talking about the reality. Way back in Exodus 25, when God had Moses make the tabernacle, and the tabernacle ultimately comes to rest in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem becomes, then the tabernacle becomes the temple. Right at the beginning, God said, Moses, I want you to make on earth, I want you to make this tabernacle on earth after the pattern that I show you on the mountain. From the very beginning, when Moses is on Mount Sinai, he sees a blueprint. God shows him a blueprint, or I would propose, according to the book of Hebrews, God shows him the real deal, the real Jerusalem, the real temple that is in heaven. And what's on earth is merely a picture. And always what we should be anticipating is that when the real shows up, we don't need the picture anymore. I've mentioned this story, but it's the one that comes to mind that I do like it. I got to spend four and a half months in Israel. Just before I left for Israel, I put a ring on my honey's finger right there. This was 24 years ago. So, 1993, I get a ring on her finger, and then I leave her for four and a half months. And I take with me a little picture book that she made me of our memories from the last year. So we'd been dating for a year, then we were engaged for a year. So we had just gotten engaged. The, our me memories of each other and lots of pictures of her. And so I'm in Israel studying in Jerusalem and looking at pictures all the time. Looking at pictures. Sometimes I'd hold the pictures on my chest and I would pray for her. Sometimes I would just stare at her eyes. One of the beautiful things that we did was we set it up so that we were both meeting Jesus daily at the same time. Same universal time, not the same local time. So whatever it was, 6 p.m. her time, it was 2 a.m. for me, and consistently I, was, I would wake up and have devotions so that we were meeting the Lord together. It's just one of those attempts for me as a young fiancé to just nurture our hearts in a unity around Jesus. And then other times I'd look at those pictures and then they would turn into kissing a picture. Yes. So then I came home. In fact, I got an early plane ticket, and I thought, she doesn't know I'm coming. I'm going to surprise her completely. And she knew. So <laughs> I come home, and I get into the living room, and she's sitting right... I walk into the door, and she's sitting right over in the chair, and I bent over and pulled out my picture book, and I just kind of turned my back to her, and I just started looking at the picture book again. And, man, she's so beautiful. What a treasure. What a gift. I'm looking at the pictures. You think I did that? <laughs> no, I did not do that. So I embraced her. And uh, she was emotionally distraught because she 
she thought she knew when I was coming home, and I was like nine hours later, and she thought my plane had crashed and all this kind of stuff. So she was empty of tears and empty of anything romantic. <laughs> so, but anyway, that's not what I did, because the real was there, and I went over and I embraced her, because when the real shows up, I don't need the picture. Hear how the New Testament talks about us. First of all, Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, he's comparing the Old and New Covenants, and he's thinking about the Old and New Covenants through the lens of the book of Genesis. And he remembers the story of Hagar and the story of Sarah. Sarah was barren. Hagar's womb was fertile. And it was only because Sarah's womb was barren that Abraham tried to take things into his own hands and snag Hagar. Now, Sarah went years, decades, before the promise of God that she would have a son finally came to fruition. And first Isaiah, in Isaiah 54, and then Paul in Galatians 5, reflecting on this text, this, this story in the past, they said, there was more going on than one man and two different women. This was a story about the ages. Hagar represents the Old Covenant, which was flourishing under God's judgment. And Sarah represents the New Covenant, which it looked like it was never going to come about. Centuries went by, and the Abrahamic Covenant had not given birth to the nations. He was a father of a nation, not the father of a multitude of nations. And the goal was that through you, Abraham, the world would be blessed. It looked as though it was never going to happen. And yet finally, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And the little parable of Hagar and Sarah's lives pointed to the history of redemption, history of salvation, where the old covenant seemed to be flourishing, and yet it, it wasn't what God had promised. And it wasn't able to give birth. It was unable to give birth to the fulfillment of the promise. And then finally, God brought about, through his, the death of his servant, which in Isaiah is called a birth pain. And then at the end of Isaiah 53, we're told that the servant who dies on behalf of the many has offspring. And Jesus was never married. And yet he's gained offspring because now, through this death event, he's bearing the, the curse of birth pain upon himself as a, it's just a, an image of him bearing the curse and then Isaiah 54 1 says the barren woman did not bear she never experienced birth pain and yet she has more children now than the married woman Sarah never had to go through the curse and yet now she has offspring why because the curse was born by another with that in mind, Paul, in Galatians 
chapter 4 says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, you want to go backwards. You want to be connected with Hagar, not with Sarah. Do you not listen to the law itself? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, one by the free woman. But the son of the slave was born to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is Mount Sinai, that's Old Covenant, bearing children of slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Hear that. The present Jerusalem in Paul's day was a symbol, and it's the same Jerusalem we would have today, is a symbol of curse, a symbol of destruction. For she is in slavery with her children, filled with a high percentage of people who still have a veil over their eyes because they haven't treasured Jesus. And therefore, they're more like the Gentiles than they are like real Jews. Paul says in Romans 2, a real Jew is one inwardly, transformed by the power of the Spirit. But then he says, but the Jerusalem above, not the physical earthly one here. No, the one that's part of the new creation, not the original one. No, the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Now he's talking to Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying, you may have been born in this world, but now you, and, and you may have been children of the devil at one time, but now you've got a new mother. You have a new birth certificate. You're identified with the real, heavenly Jerusalem. Here's the writer of Hebrews. He too contrasts Mount Sinai, the Old Covenant, with the new, and in that context, he says this in Hebrews chapter 12. But you have not come to Mount Sinai, to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet. That's not where you are. No, you have come, here it is, to Mount Zion. You, church, are already there. You've already arrived at Mount Zion, says Paul, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's how he's reading the prophets. He's seeing this as already inaugurated, that the great end times ingathering to Jerusalem has happened because Jesus is the temple. Indeed, Jerusalem has expanded. Jesus is the temple. Those in Jesus become the temple. And now wherever those people go, the Holy of Holies begins to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And even as far as the ends of the earth, like Mount View, Minnesota, gets the gospel. And with that, we encounter the very presence of God. Jerusalem has come to us. Jerusalem is beginning to fill the earth. We have come to the new Jerusalem. This is how he's reading the prophets. And what are we expecting, though? We're not just expecting an eternal spiritual identification with that heavenly Jerusalem. We're expecting Revelation 21 to be fulfilled when the new Jerusalem that we're already identified with, that we already have our citizenship with, comes to earth. That's the already but not yet schema. So we're anticipating... The new Jerusalem that has been brought to us 
to now become physical. And we'll live there. And that Jerusalem will not just be a city, it will be everything. <coughs> there are five mountain texts in Isaiah. You can just walk them through. You can type into your concordance, mountain, and look them up in the book of Isaiah. And what's amazing is that in the beginning, the mountain is Jerusalem. At the end, the mountain is the new creation. The entire earth is the mountain of God. That Jerusalem, holy of holies, has now filled everything. Remember that vision in Revelation 22, 21 rather, is that the city that comes down looks like a cube. There's only one cube in the Old Testament. It's the holy of holies. And now everything, the city, is the Holy of Holies. There is no temple because the temple by its nature distinguished what was holy from what was common. It had um, three sections. No, there is no temple because everything has become the Holy of Holies. And we're already identified with it. We already have our high priest who has taken us through the curtain and we are enjoying the very presence of the great king. So help me understand how we understand Jerusalem today and in the sense that, go back to your diagram that you just had up. Okay. We're in the church age. Jerusalem is still a physical place. Yeah. Uh, and, and in one sense, I've always thought pray for the peace of Jerusalem still applies in terms of the physical place. Uh, I guess I'm saying... Um, how we understand how we're to how we're to see God's work within that physical place? Is it is it valid to believe that God is still favoring that physical place? Or I mean, do you discard? I mean, with your illustration with your wife, you didn't discard that picture book. You hang on to it. I assume. Uh, I mean, God hasn't discarded Jerusalem, but what? Tell me how to understand that. Question make sense. So, oh, I never know. So how do we relate? <laughs> so how do we, as Christians, if our identity is with the heavenly Jerusalem in Paul's words, how are we supposed to think about the present Jerusalem? And that's a sticky question. I agree. Um, this, I am. I don't think there's anything. Um, future with respect to the future there isn't anything distinctive about physical Jerusalem but there is a lot distinctive about physical Jerusalem with respect to the past it is that Jerusalem that gave rise to the promises of the Messiah it's that Jerusalem where God chose to make his presence real and it's from that Jerusalem where the Messiah had to die that the temple began to expand to fill the earth through the people of God. Everything started there in Jerusalem. And because of that, there is a um, high significance to it within, the, within God's purposes. And therefore, we should still... Um, there's still benefit in... Um, 
for example, I, I would think there's still be ben there is still benefit in taking a trip to Jerusalem in order to get a better framework for the history in the past. That's one side. Second thing I would say. According to Paul in Romans 1.16, the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Greek. Not only is there priority among the Jewish people in missions, according to Paul, at least from a salvation history perspective, there's still quite, I, I'm not certain whether it means that all of our priorities should be first to the Jews today in missions, but the way that God worked it out, it all started with the Jews. He surround, Jesus surrounded himself with 12 Jews, and it's upon them that the church is built. But not only that, in Romans 2 verse 9, he says, In the future, when I judge everyone, I will judge the Jews first and then the Gentiles. So even in the future, in God's mind, when, the, when he comes and returns as full-blown covenant witness at the end of the age, and we have what we call the judgment seat experience where, where he opens up the books and we all gather there, he will hold the Jews first responsible for their rejection of Jesus, and then he'll hold the world responsible for their rejection of Jesus. And so within that framework, and Teresa has heard me talk in the last year, even in the last year, the Lord's been doing, been working in me, and I'm not sure how it's supposed to be fleshed out, but a deeper sense that I, as a believer, have a responsibility to be more mindful of, of the ethnic Jewish people. To, be, to make it a greater priority in my evangelism, in my ministry as a professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary. What can I do to help us not simply have a global vision, but to keep Jews on the map? But with respect to the future, I see, when I see the great battle, as the Bible talks about it, a great battle that will climax at the end of the ages with respect to Jerusalem, and I see the Antichrist setting himself up in the temple, 2 Thessalonians 4. The temple is consistently in Paul, not a physical place. It is the church. Is so there I, I a think, physical rebuilding of the temple, though? The I, I don't think so at all. Really? Not at all. Because you hear all these stories that uh, there's a prefab temple ready to go up and all that. And there are. They're, they're, yeah, I've heard the same so stories. Would that be but, but I don't think that's a fulfillment of what's being called for. Would that be an act of disobedience? The act of disobedience starts in the failure to recognize that the temple has come in Jesus, that he's the real deal. So Jeremiah chapter 3 says, The day will come when the ark of the covenant of the Lord will no longer be remembered. Why? Because all of Jerusalem will have become the throne of God. So the Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God in the Old Covenant. And inside that Ark were the Ten Commandments. Now, ironically, the law was not on the hearts of the people. Jeremiah 17, 1 tells us that what was etched on their heart was sin. Sin was inscribed on the tablet of their heart rather than the law. But Jeremiah 30 anticipated the day when all the people of God would have the law written on their hearts. That is, this is how I'm understanding Jeremiah, is the day will come when the physical Ark of the Covenant will no longer be remembered because all of Jerusalem will have become the throne of God 
And it says right there in Jeremiah 3, 16, 17, and 18, that what Jerusalem will be as the throne, Jerusalem will be filled with those from the nations, it says, who will no longer follow the wickedness of their hearts. And not only those from the nations, but then it says, and there, uh, Judah and Israel, the north and the south, will be reunited in Jerusalem. So what I'm envisioning is a unified people of God made up of um, ethnic Jews and nations who are serving Yahweh their God and David their king. That's Jeremiah 30, verse 8. The foreigners are serving David their king. It's, it's, they have the same king as the Jews. It's all one king, one kingdom. And Jerusalem now is the very... That what's being envisioned is that Jerusalem has become the very place of God, the very, um, it's become the very throne of God. It's not separated from the people. They couldn't, in the Old Covenant, they couldn't get in and even read the law. But now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, we become the letter that everyone is reading, written not with tablets of stone, but with, tablet, with, with the Spirit on tablets of the heart. So now everything is going public. We become Jerusalem. We've identified with the king. Jesus right now is reigning in the heavenly Jerusalem, and that heavenly Jerusalem will come to earth. And so, no, I'm not anticipating a physical temple to be rebuilt at any time. I'm anticipating King Jesus to return and for us to worship him as the king in his palace. Continue on this one for a little while. So, is there is there no evangelical connection to the cause of Zionism, or what emerged in the 19th century as the reestablishment of a national homeland for the Jews in this geography? First part of my question, and then the second part of the question: Is there no connection of this geography to our Christian? So the first question was, does 1948's establishment of the homeland of Israel as a physical location in the Middle East where a high percentage of Jews following the Holocaust were gathered, does that have any connection to evangelical doctrine? Is there fulfillment of prophecy happening in the 1948 reconstitution of the nation of Israel, the physical state of Israel? That's the first question. The second question was, does the physical land of Israel and the central location of Jerusalem on present-day earth have any relationship to evangelical eschatology? You guys are throwing them at me today. So, We're anticipating the next yeah, we're just warming you up for the other question. <laughs> first question. First question, and it all depends on what context I'm in, what church I'm speaking in, right? I could stop with my first statement. My first statement is I am absolutely confident that God was doing something massively significant in 1948 in reconstituting the Jews in Jerusalem. I could stop right there, and most people would read that how they would want to, and be happy. But I could also say, and God was doing something massively significant, even beyond what I know, in every other place of the earth. I don't think that there was, there is a, there are specific prophecies that called for the Jews to be gathered to Jerusalem in 1948. 
I think the prophecies that are often read that way are prophecies that were actually related to Cyrus's restoration. Isaiah names him by name, and Jeremiah was counting 70 years, and Ezra tells us at the very beginning, Nehemiah, at the very beginning of his book, that what um, Ezra and Nehemiah, sorry, both of them, say that what was promised back then is now being fulfilled. It was the initial restoration, physical restoration, back to the homeland after exile. And it had to happen because from Bethlehem the Messiah had to rise. There, they had to be back there. The king had to come from Jerusalem. They had to be back in the land. And, and yet then we come, and this relates to our text today, um, the when did the ingathering happen? And I'm going to argue that it happens in verse 18 of chapter 3. God declares, I've already done it. I've already gathered them in. And it's proof for us that we need not fear in a time of chaos. The overlap of the ages, that the great ingathering of the people of God to Jerusalem happens in the person of Christ. And the expansion of Jerusalem to fill the earth from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now I say that, and then I'll add one more thing. And that is that I can't... I don't know for certain, but I do believe, um, if, if I don't know for certain, if the great gathering of ethnic Jews into one location on the earth is designed by God in order to bring about what I believe is promised, a mass inclusion of Jews at the end of the age, where their jealousy toward the Gentiles and enjoying their Messiah will all of a sudden work in them a new surrender to the living God, and they will come to God and to his Christ. I'm still anticipating that based on Romans 11, my reading of Romans 11, 25-26. The, the great... So, so I, I can anticipate, I could see how having lots of Jews in one location could be the instrument of God to fulfill that promise. But I, I cannot say for certain that's what he's doing. Um, Zionism and a political disposition that is distinctively for Israel in contrast to other nations in the region, I'm very hesitant to see that as biblically grounded. Because Jesus is Israel. And, what's it, and, and so a Jew is not some kind of a middle ground. A Jew without Jesus is not somehow a little closer to God than a Gentile without Jesus. No, everyone who is a Jew are those who have identified with the ultimate Jew, Jesus. And the texts that talk about the future of the Israel of God I believe we're talking about the church. Not about some people apart from him. Apart from Christ. So right now in my own growth as a 42-year-old 42, 42 who's been wrestling with the scripture as I have, knowing full well that by God's grace I'll still have an eternity to grow, that's at least how I'm understanding things to be tied together as I'm working the scripture. Does that help give... Did I answer the questions? Well, one question. 
is there's a tremendous amount of evangelical, I mean, there was a tremendous amount of evangelical furor or fervor that fueled the Zionist movement from, from the Balfour Declaration to 48. So there was this confluence of, of Jewish interests and American Christian evangelical fervor that, that fueled Zionism, fuels it today. There was a tremendous amount of prayers and energies and gifts and attentions directed spiritually, politically, economically to the perpetuation of the nation of Israel. Um, when you travel the path that you, you propose, which, which you lay out there, uh, there are other evangelical directions that start down that road and turn in the direction of anti-Semitism. And so, tell me how you travel that road and don't, uh, that it doesn't take an anti-Semitic flavor. So the question is, it feels as though I'm being, I'm on a trajectory of anti-Semitism because I've separated myself somewhat from ethnic Jews. I, I would say that there are, <coughs> There are evangelical Christian defenders yes. of Israel who might interpret sure. what so, you're saying as, as having an anti-Semitic flavor. So let me let me just put this into a historical framework a little bit. In the rise of Protestant liberalism at the early 1900s, Protestant liberalism grew right out of um, there was a whole movement of evolution, okay, both in science but also in our understanding of history. The idea was that, so we understand how Darwinian evolution worked. You start with the most underdeveloped, and it increasingly becomes more mature and developed. Well, as science and technology rose, the amount of need of, the, of God to explain everything. No, now we have answers that we didn't have. All we could say in the 1600s was, well, God's in charge. But now we have answers to everything, and God began to become more and more smaller, small rather than increasingly large. Like, wow, God is in charge of all this? That wasn't the response. The response was, um, we're going to take away miracles, because we're going to explain everything. We're going to take away miracles. Um, anything in... You've heard in, in uh, Old Testament studies, some of you, J-E-D-P, the sources that were attributed to the Pentateuch. Moses wasn't the author. Rather, anything that is highly developed and monotheistic, there's only one God. Well, that come, that, that's a very late development in the evolution of religion. So you start out with very broad polytheism, but even before that, um, gods in everything, animism, spirit, spiritism, and then... Religion develops to a polytheism, there's lots of gods, then to a henotheism, there's lots of gods, but I worship one, and then finally you might arrive at a monotheism. So anything that, so then the history of Israel was being discounted because it assumes monotheism from the beginning. So then you rework the entire Old Testament into a modern conception of how science works. With that is a downplay of sin and the holiness of God. 
And so Protestant liberalism comes in. It's, it's now reinterpreting the Bible. It's not affirming the miraculous or the historical. And it's minimizing and downplaying sin. So now all of a sudden Jesus didn't really rise from the dead physically. And we're not expecting him to return physically. And the call is not to charge people to surrender to the great king. And all in that context then, admitting their sin and their need for a savior to find hope. No, that's not what was happening at the beginning of the 1900s. Instead, what we have is a people, a church, that is highly um, focused on us, not on God. It's downplaying sin, and it's just calling people to love. As long as you engage in social love, love one another, you're, you're a Christian. And in that context, the church responded. One of the things it did is it pulled back from the world. And so it's in that time that we begin to see Christian schools as opposed to just universities begin to rise up. But also we see an entire growth in a separatist movement where we're going to separate ourselves from the world. But one of the, one of the elements that became true was dispensationalism, if you've heard of that, grew as one of the foundational tenets of the majority of the evangelical world. It was, it was a response to... Um, what it, was, what it was was an attempt, along with a lot of very solid theology, to say, this is who we are, and we will not move. And Zionism grew out of dispensational doctrine. Dispensationalism, by its nature, distinguishes the church that we're experiencing today from the Israel and the promises given to Israel in the Old Testament. And it comes in different flavors... But classic dispensationalism says that none of the Old Testament would be for us. The New Testament is for the church and not for the Jews. God's going to be working for the Jews in a future millennium. And so he needs to get the church out of here. That's the rapture. And then he'll be doing a work among the church, among the Jews, fulfilling his promises to the Jews. A lot of dispensationalists today don't go there. They're called progressive dispensationalists, and they would sound a lot like me with respect to today, but they would still hold to a need for God to fulfill land promises to the Jews in the future. And they identify the fulfillment of those land promises with a millennial reign of Jesus. So a progressive dispensationalist, which is what most of the dispensationalists now are, now are at a place like Dallas Theological Seminary, very much akin to, on so much theology, to where I am. Um, high view of the Bible, treasuring of Jesus, and even affirming that there is only one people of God today. Most dispensationalists haven't, didn't always talk like that. Progressive dispensationalists affirm there is one people of God today, made up of Jew and Gentile in Jesus, one new man. And they see Jesus as the temple, as the ultimate seed of Abraham, and those in him become the seed of Abraham. So they're affirming that, but they still are holding on to a future in the family of God where certain children get greater privilege than others. So it would be comparable to my family having adopted three kids from Ethiopia. They're all part of my family, but when it comes out to divvying out the inheritance in the future, if there is one, it would be 
that, that my three biological kids would still have certain privileges that the other three would not. And when I read the New Testament, so Zionism has grown out of that, that type of a, a theology that dominated America. And, and so I... My understanding, as I'm reading the New Testament, is that not just Gentiles need to be adopted into Christ. Jews do as well. And that everyone who's been adopted into the family will have the same privileges into the future, with no distinction. Now that said, with respect to the anti-Semitism, I would, I would just want to go into the New Testament and say, how is a Jew identified? A rebel of Jesus is not identified... What Jesus, what they said, we are children of Abraham to Jesus. And Jesus' response was, oh, you have Abraham as your father physically, but I tell you, you're children of the devil. And what I'm proposing is that Jesus was not anti-Semitic, nor was Paul. But neither of them had any hesitation to declare their Jewish physical brethren as cursed. Because they failed to surrender to Jesus. There is a future for ethnic Jews, but not separate from Christ. And there is a future for Gentiles in Jesus, and I believe all who are in Jesus will enjoy all the benefits and gifts and blessings that the Son, Jesus, has secured for all who are in Him. And I don't think it's anti-Semitic to talk this way, I think it's loving. Because Jesus is indeed the only name under heaven by which people can be saved. So, I, I, it could be charged as intolerant, but, but I'm cautious when people begin to talk about the Palestinians. And I've, I've had coffee with believing Palestinians in Bethlehem. And... I am more united with them and with the Christian Jews that I got to have coffee with at the same time, with them, more united together with the believers in Christ, regardless of what ethnic group they are, than I am with any people group that doesn't identify with Jesus. I hope that, that helps. <laughs> I just appreciate the Thank you. Psalm 87. Just keep this one in the back of your mind. Psalm 87 is, is, a, is a text worth for, for everyone in this room to celebrate, regardless of where you came from. Here's what it says. On my holy mountain stands the city that he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. More than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Tell me some of those glorious things. Among those who know me, I will mention Rahab and Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Cush. This one was born there. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers, not the people, the peoples. This one was born in Jerusalem. 
The psalmist is anticipating new birth certificates being issued across the globe. And those new birth certificates are all identified with one city, Jerusalem. So, all we've gotten to was the timing and the audience of Zephaniah 3, 16. And... We hear... So, so I'm arguing that the timing is today, the audience is the church. When, it's, when Zephaniah says, on that day it will be said to you, O Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. He's already identified who's in Zion. It's the people from beyond the rivers of Cush who've gathered there that God preserved through the judgment day. And that's us. It's the book of Acts being fulfilled from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This, I think, is how Jesus was reading the prophets. This is how Paul, I believe, was reading the prophets and how I I invite you to read the prophets. That the audience is the church. This is what he says. On that day, it will be said to you, O Zion, don't fear. Don't let your hands for a week. So, a boxer, you know, he, he's ready. Whereas, a disposition of, well, what would this be? What would that be? Resign. Resign? Defeat? What does this represent internally? Despair? Despair? No hope? Ambivalence. Ambivalence? There's an implication here that in the midst of the heat, when the day of the Lord is inaugurated, even the very people of God who've been captured are going to feel that way. You're going to have to battle against discouragement and hopelessness. And I think this this is the idea. It's the last hour. But it's not the last minute. We're in the final day. And this day will get stretched out for eternity and that means we're at the very beginning of that day. The day of the Lord is the ultimate Sabbath. We finally reach six days. Seventh day has come. God's reestablished rest on a global scale. And this Sabbath will never end. And yet, the implication is here that on that day, when the day of the Lord comes, it's not all going to be fixed in a moment. And you need God to speak It will be said in that day to speak through people like me, through Pastor Jason, through your small group leader, through you opening up the very word of God. And here, fear not. Let not your hands grow weak. Why? Why should I keep hoping? Why should I keep seeking the Lord together and waiting on Him? Why should I be patiently pursuing Him? Because, two reasons, 
The Lord your God is in your midst. The temple of God is, has come to man. The presence of God is here. And God's promise to complete salvation is what follows upon that. But think about the presence of God. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's where Matthew ends. Matthew began with, his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. We'll pick up here next week. Just take comfort today. We'll just, just start on the first one. The first reason is, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Don't let your heart grow discouraged. Don't give up. Because the Lord is with you. The very Lord who has declared judgment on the enemies, the very Lord who says in chapter 2, verse 11, He will show up in power and famish all the gods of the earth. The very one who disarmed all the rulers and authorities already at the cross is greater than he that is in the world and he's with you. Let the truthfulness of God's being with us Overcome discouragement, despondency, frustration. I think about 1 John chapter 2, it's around verse 9, where he says, Darkness is passing, behold, the light is already shining. There's still darkness, it's dawn. And if this is all that we had was dawn, we would feel that darkness has not stopped. But we have noon to look forward to. And it's the presence of the light with us right now that can help us through the darkness. This text is anticipating an already but not yet. A time where the day has come and yet it's not all finished yet. But it's here. It will be said in that day, don't fear. It will be said in that day, the Lord your God is in your midst. And we can take comfort in that today. Because we are the church. And the timing is now. The judgment has passed. And behold, the new creation has been started. And we're part of it. So he's here to help you. In what feels like dark, to remind yourself, okay, Christ has won. He alone holds the heart of my wife. He alone holds the heart of my kids. He holds my own body that's being eaten away by this trouble or, or my, my son's life that is so fragile. God is with me. And in that, I find out. Father, I thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to go where I didn't anticipate going. I, I want to be faithful to your word, and I want to help these brothers and sisters read well, because we are so needy. I pray you continue to help me to grow. I, I don't even begin to think that I've got all the answers, and, and there may be things I've said that are not honoring, that aren't, don't perfectly align with your word, but I thank you that these folks have your word, and they can test it, and they can wrestle with it. I pray increasingly you'd help us all be more in alignment with truth. 
truth overcomes lies, and that Satan is full of them. May Christ be glorified through us. Give us the hope we need to not fear and to not let our hands grow weak. Thank you that you are with us in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.